Well, hello, listeners. Welcome back to the Primate Cast, and welcome back to Chris, my co-host here, who I've not seen in a few months, and one of the reasons for our dead air recently. Welcome back, Chris, from Two Months in Africa. Thank you, Andrew. It's good to be back. Yeah. So, what was that like? Africa was great. Yeah. Yep. I was in uh, West Africa mm-hmm. in Basu, which is a village in Guinea, mm-hmm. and our laboratory here at PRI has a long-term field site there. It's one of those six long-term field sites in Africa. Okay, cool. You're right. Matsuzawa, Professor Matsuzawa is probably talking about that in his first podcast a little bit. That's right. Yeah. So there's 13 chimps there. Mm-hmm. Uh, they live in kind of an isolated forest, which mm-hmm. is surrounded by savanna. And it's a really great group to study. We, we do field experiments. We do a lot of observational work. Right. So what were you doing there this time? Uh, well, I was there for two months, mm-hmm. and I observed the chimps every day. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't collecting a lot of data, but I was looking for you know, ideas and examples of how they use their minds in the wild. Right. See, that helps me in the laboratory. Right, because mostly you do your work in cognitive experience in the lab. That's right. So did you have any brilliant ideas while you were out there? <laughs> exactly. I mean, it was good <laughs> to kind of brainstorm and... Um, I also enjoyed working with the villagers, so I did some experiments, okay. uh, some kind of behavioral economics game theory experiments yeah. with the villagers. What was that like? Yeah, it was great. You know, here and in most places, we do psychology experiments with undergraduates. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, and it's probably sample. not the best sam- like sample to do all of psychology research on. So it was nice to kind of get some new subjects, and in this case... You know, people that lived in a small-scale society, a village in Africa. Yeah, so, yeah, it was, it was uh, some good data. Cool. Yeah. And for the people who out there who maybe can't see, uh, I've noticed that you've lost a little bit of weight <laughs> during your time there. <laughs> I have. I did lose a little bit of weight. Uh, there's not a lot of choices for things to eat there. Uh-huh. Um, certainly no McDonald's or pizza. <laughs> so. There's a lot of rice and sauce. Coming soon, I'm sure. <laughs> So what what kind of things were you eating? Uh, mostly rice and sauce. Yeah, uh, which both of which you're not a huge fan of. Not a huge fan. Um, but we also had some interesting things. For example, we ate snake. Okay. Yes, there are very dangerous snakes in the forest. Mm-hmm. The gaboon viper, mm-hmm. which is the largest viper in the world. Okay. And also has the highest yield of venom. Okay. So they're also very dangerous. Right. So... The custom in the village, uh, when we encounter the snakes in in the village forest, is for the guides to right. eradicate remove the, snake, the threat, the yeah. remove the threat, and then nearby in the Nimba Mountain World Heritage Site, of course, the snakes are totally protected. Of course, of course. Um, so when they they do find a snake, and a lot of times it's the chimps that find the snake. Right. Okay. So chimps kind of find the snakes, and the chimps. Will make very specific calls that the guides yeah, recognize. Yeah, 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 yeah. That means that there's a snake, and then the guides will find it. See, so and we're benefiting from the chimps' altruism here. That's right. Mm-hmm. It's a teamwork, mm-hmm. and then the the guides will take care of it, and then they don't want it to go to waste, so uh, we'll end up cooking it. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, yeah, did you enjoy it? Um, mm, I wish I could say I enjoyed it, but <laughs> I really. But you could eat it. I did. I did eat it, but I don't exactly enjoy. The taste of snake meat. It's and you traveled. You traveled with a couple of other researchers, didn't you? Yes. Did they also eat the snake? Yeah. 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 Okay. We all partook in the snake. It was kind of rubbery. Mm-hmm. We cooked it with some chili powder, boiled it, but um, yeah, it's it's not my favorite. <laughs> not my favorite. <laughs> well, there's not a lot of snake around here. No. So you're back to 
I think in America, they some people eat rattlesnakes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I don't think it's too uncommon around the world, for sure. Yeah. Something to do. Anyway, that was my interesting yes. Mosu story. Well, welcome back. It's good to have you back. Thanks. And it's exciting because we can get back on track here. Exactly. Mm-hmm. We can start uh, doing podcasts again. That's right. And so we'd like to come come back strong here and, and get a few interviews up over the summer. Um, and the first one that we're going to be putting up is a, an interview with Dr. Lawrence Anthony that mm-hmm. we did a couple of months ago in February. Mm-hmm. And that was a lot of fun. So Dr. Anthony is a professor at Wasila University, where he focuses on using corpus linguistics to develop technical tools that will aid students and other researchers who are non-native English speakers um, improve and develop their writing skills, technical writing skills uh, in particular. That's right. So he's not a primatologist. He's not a primatologist, no. But his uh, discipline, corpus linguistics, in particular, technical writing and science kind of applies across disciplines that's right many many people so it's really a useful thing especially for well for anybody but especially for people who don't use english natively and naturally Mm -hmm. um, it really does seem to bring a lot of advantages to use things like corpus tools Um, but maybe you want to explain a little bit about what corpus tools are then sure so he gave a talk here and um the the main focus of the talk of the talk was on his software which we all downloaded, mm-hmm. um, and we'll give you the information. Right, um, you can you can get to uh, Dr. Anthony's webpage at www.antlab, A-N-T-L-A-B, dot S-C-I, dot W-A-S-E-D-A, dot A-C, dot J-P. That's right. So you go to his website, and you can download his software, uh, which is this Corpus Linguistics tool. And the software basically enables you to upload your own papers or as many papers as you want. And then the software will kind of analyze the papers for you and, and tell you in detail kind of how the papers are written. Um, and then you can actually use that in your own writing to kind of figure out what the proper style is. That's right. So the, the, base, the basic um, situation here is you just upload a corpus to give you kind of a database of information mm-hmm. and typically focused on a field that you're interested in writing for Mm -hmm. uh, and then it'll just give you a lot of examples and how to set a structure your sentences and things like that within your your papers to fit that field so it it worked quite well the workshop was a lot of fun i think it was a big success it was fun and it was also interesting to to see what his impression of primatology writing was like since he encounters so many different kinds of scientific writing that's right in the interview you'll hear him kind of talk about what he thought about primatology writing that's right yeah it was really interesting a couple of nice anecdotes later on Mm -hmm. okay so without i guess further ado we should probably get right into the interview absolutely let's get started all right here's dr lawrence anthony okay so um i'm lawrence anthony so i'm a professor at wasada university uh and i'm working in the center for english language education in science and engineering uh which we usually just call a celis which is easier to remember than the center for english language education in science and engineering um, so I've been there since 2004, and um, before that I was uh, so I was a pr- uh, started out as an associate professor and then moved to a professor a couple of years ago. Before that I was a lecturer at Okayama University of Science for 11 years. So I've been in Japan now 20 years. So 20, 20 years now. Yeah. So, um, but the whole time is I've only been working in science and engineering. It's kind of I said that in the talk today mm-hmm. that. Yeah, that's all I've been really doing. But it's really where my passion is as well. So what brought you to Japan? 
And, mm. and for what what did you do before coming here? I mean, could you talk about? Well, I was a student. Yes. Yeah, so before what was I your came uh, here. focus? Well, I originally started. I've I've always been interested in computer science, and mm. I, I was doing that as a as a kid, really. That sure. was, you know, in the 1980s was when really home computers just came in. Mm. So like we got the first ZX81 in in, <laughs> in Britain, which is like the first computer under 50 pounds, and it was connected to the TV and stuff oh, like cool. that. So. That's where I started when I was 11 years old and that was the, the computer came in into the house and it was like, wow. So I started just pl- make, playing with that and you know, making software. I did some software for school actually, made some simulations for, mm-hmm. for school physics classes and things like that. Okay. And, um, but, you know, I was just doing maths and physics all the way through. Went to university, did mathematical physics there. And um, at that point I started thinking like, it's all this theoretical stuff. It's, where's the practical applications of all of this? I really wanted to get some kind of grip on reality. Mm. And so I thought, let's get out of this for a, a short time. And initially a short time. And I went to Japan for some travel. Okay. Like, like lot, what, what lots of students do. You know, they take a year out, basically, after, after university. So that was my idea. To that was also Andrew's idea. That's right. Well, a different timeline, but basically to take a break. Yeah, take a break from it. And... Uh, came to Japan and immediately I, I fell in love with the country just kind of because it's so different from me from Britain Re- everything's different cultural values the way people live the food the, the environment mm-hmm. the weather everything so I kind of quickly fell in love with the country but I also started you know getting involved with people in science and engineering again just to, you know, just bump into people sure. in, in work and just realized, wow, the English is a really big problem here. And the communication, the science communication is a really big problem here. Mm-hmm. So you have all this, this great research and none of it's getting out. Right. And that's actually a, <clears throat> a, historically a problem with primatology because J- Japan has had a strong primatology background. Right. But for a long time, it was mostly Japanese journals and that's right. inner communication. There's a mainstay within country system right. for that. So Has it been changing? Since? Yes. Yes. Yes, All it's right. changing. I mean, the first actual dedicated journal to primatology was Primates, and that was an English journal from the beginning. Right. This is more than Published years. By, by a Japanese society. Yeah, by the Monkey Park here right. in Inuyama, actually. Okay. So, yeah, yeah. So it has been... There's been a lot of precedents, and in fact, in our first podcast, we talked to the director here who, who talked about how in Africa, actually, the Japanese researchers were the first ones to start looking for great apes. They were there before Jane Goodall. Wow. But you, nobody knows you know, that. Nobody knows about yeah, it because yeah. nobody's communicating it to the, mm-hmm. to the world. Right. Yeah. So I really felt that, that um, there's just a real problem with mm-hmm. that communication. Not sure. the content itself. It's just that nobody's, no, nobody knows what people are doing here. So, right. so, so the, I think the interesting thing there is uh, how you brought these kind of two different things. So your background in computer science, math, and physics, but then yeah. now into an expertise and competence in using English for specific purposes, using right. the tools that you developed using right. physics, computer so, science. Yeah, um, as... Uh, as as I think I said in the workshop today that we were doing, um, when I first started teaching English, which I never really like, I never feel my I'm a, an English <laughs> teacher, but I'll say it. Um, when I started teaching technical writing and, and so on, it's just we're just not using any technology to do this. And obviously, there, there can be there's potential for s- tools in any field, right? right? If you're doing observation of language, you, can, you should be able to use some tools to do it. But there wasn't any around really, mm-hmm. and. Um, 
when I was doing my master's, which is actually teaching English as a foreign language, I got it. I did. I have got some edu- some qualifications in this field. One of the few of us. <laughs> <laughs> but when I was doing that, I um, I took a course by somebody called John Sinclair at University of Birmingham, where I was at. And he's actually one of the pioneers of corpus linguistics in the world. And he's unfortunately passed away now. But he, um, I took one of his courses and, and for the first time in that whole master's program, and really the first time since coming into Japan, I saw like, a way to look at language in a scientific, empirical, and a quantitative way. So I took his course and really felt that this was the first kind of scientific approach. So I got into it. And it, and it kind of kept link, linked in with my computer science background. Mm-hmm. So when I was doing my PhD, I started um, developing more tools that can help us to do our writing. That's very really interesting. That's for the PhD work. It is really interesting. So, I mean, I'll admit that my, so I wasn't very familiar with this whole field of corpus linguistics before I started communicating with you to right. start up this, this workshop. But I remember at one point looking at Wikipedia, and the very first sentence in Wikipedia for corpus linguistics is, you know, challenge to the Noam Chomsky school of linguistic right. uh, language development and things. Right, right. It's um, the view of corpus linguistics, well, not everybody, but a lot of people believe that, you know, we get a lot of input through. You know, just through life, you know, parents and, and school and so on. And through that input, we can actually start learning language. Um, but that's kind of a deep, deep discussion. But the more practical side of it is if we can look at language as it's out there and we can identify the patterns that people are using, because they certainly are using f- fairly fixed patterns in a lot of their speech. So we can look at the patterns that people are actually using and then basically teach those. Right. So it's a method really yeah, to yeah. observe and, and teach. I thought that was really useful the way that you put that out. I mean, using science basically to understand and then apply uh, right. and, and to use to structure in English. Well, why not? I think <coughs> the traditional English teachers maybe they feel like, you know, they, they, especially native speakers, feel that they know the language and then they get a question from a student and they tell the student the answer to this kind of linguistic problem. But it's not really the way it is. Mm-hmm. You know, native speakers have have one, one experience of the language, but it's only their own, and they haven't really thought about language beyond what they've experienced. Mm-hmm. But they may be wrong, or not wrong, but they may just be different from other people. So if you look at a massive set of data, uh, which represents all kinds of people, especially if it's a randomly sampled representative sample of what people say or people write, then you get a much better answer. That's really interesting. And it, I was actually thinking a little bit about how maybe you have some insight into this, but if somehow the corpus tool, which looks up different probabilities for words after right. following another word, if that's actually maybe what people are doing in their own mind right. as kind of a cognitive process. Uh, it's coming back to that Chomskyan <laughs> issue right. again. Um, my personal belief is that we are probabilistic machines mm-hmm. and we work with probabilities all the time. Mm-hmm. So. The Chomskyan, if I understand him correctly, or, or one of the versions that he presented, because he has changed his theories over over many years, um, is that, well, his theory was that it's almost rule-based, basically rule-based, and we have the rules in our brain from birth, or it's, it's innate. Right. We have some switches, perhaps, that will change, uh, and then it will produce a different form of grammar and so on. 
but my my feeling is that we're more probabilistic in our approach. We get exposure to language, and based on what we're exposed to, we start building a model of language, mm -hmm. but it's a probabilistic model. It's a fuzzy model. Right. And if we get more exposure to a different form of language, we start making that our standard. Hmm. And we see that. You know, we... Um, if I just listen to you, yeah. I'm going to start speaking Canadian or something, right? Yeah, but we've, I've already established that it's no longer Canadian after okay. eight years. <laughs> well, actually, I've noticed in my own speech that sometimes I'll start leaving out definite articles because That's so many right. of the Japanese yes. people I talk right. to, they don't use definite articles, right. and then it gets reflected in my own speech. But there's a, actually, there's um, some interesting science behind this as well. If you build a probabilistic model of language... Uh, or a, a classifier of language, for example, a naive Bayes classifier, which is just basically a probabilistic model. Mm -hmm. And it could, you can give it examples of certain, certain phenomenon, and then it can start classifying other examples based on what it's already learned. It's mm -hmm. kind of, yeah, but that's, that's a standard classification model. But with that very simple probabilistic model of language, it can actually predict things fairly well. And a, a good example is just spam detection. If you look... If you go on, on any email system now, you'll have spam filters, and they're basically probabilistic models of what spam is. And all they do is get in this new data, this mm -hmm. new email, they look at the frequencies of the words in there, and they say, well, the prob it's probably spam. Wow. That's what they do. These classifiers do that. So they're not using some advanced, highly technical grammatical model they're just looking at frequencies of words and looking right, at the yeah. probabilities. And uh, we as humans, we obviously don't just do that because we've got semantic modeling <coughs> as well. Mm -hmm. You know, meaning of what does it mean? But that frequency issue, if you see the word, I don't know, some, some chemical or some word like Viagra, I'll say it. It's something <laughs> like that in an email. Sure. If you see that in an email, you don't even need to read anything else in it. You're going to hit the spam filter because you know straight away that any email that arrives with that word in it, it the frequency of mm -hmm. mail with that word in it is going to be um, spam, right? Right. So just cut it. Hope we're not offending any listeners out there. <laughs> I'd like to write emails about <laughs> But that's, that's the issue, you see. And then if somebody did, by, happen, by chance, send you an email with that as proper content, you wouldn't even notice it yourself. Mm -hmm. You'd be filtered out before it. So people ne be careful when they do communicate, and they won't put these kind of... Mm -hmm. odd words in there. Oh, that's interesting. So it's just, um, but that's kind of a probabilistic model of language, which I think is quite effective. Mm -hmm. And quite, maybe it's how we process mm -hmm. in reality. Yeah. I think that we're actually probabilistic machines anyway, to right. be honest. So uh, during the workshop today, I was really interested when you brought up Zipp's Law. Because yes. I have, I mean, my own personal research interest in that as well, because Zipp's Law is representative of a fractal that's pattern right. of word use. So right. scale, uh, scale symmetry, sorry. Yes. And I used a lot of that in my own research oh, behavior. Yeah, yeah. Uh -oh. because behavioral patterns tend to also have this, or at least the re repetition of behavior in time yes. tends to also follow this kind of power law. That's right. So, I mean, can you just talk a little bit about Zipp's law here? Well, um, if you look at just where it's most commonly representing into, in language use is if you just plot the frequencies of, of words in any text, they will immediately form if you if the, the ranking of those words will immediately follow that, that law, Zip's law. So the most frequent words in any text are going to be the at and so on. Then you go down to the middle level, which is going to be these, well, not semi-technical words, but just kind of general words. And then you go further down, you've got these technical words. So what that tells us if we're trying to teach language, and this is actually relates to some work that Paul Nation does um, in New Zealand, but 
if you want to teach students English, you first focus on those very high words. There's not many of them, and they're going to cover most of the language, like 80, 90 percent. Hmm. Um, Paul Nation recommends that you study 2,000 words initially, hmm. the, the most frequent 2,000 words, and they cover a huge percentage of all the text, like about 80 percent. Wow. And then you study the next thousand or the next. Well, he actually, um, he and a colleague called um, Avril Coxhead um, created an uh, an academic word list, which is basically more words further down the list, but have good coverage in academic writing. Mm -hmm. So if you if you study those next, about five hundred and seventy words in that list, study those, and you're going to have even better coverage and start being able to read and understand without dictionaries and other systems. So that Zips law really comes in here. So. It, it means that you don't have to learn every word in the English language to be able to process things. Mm -hmm. Most of the words in the language are these one frequency, you know, frequency of one words coming in, and even native speakers won't know what they are. Mm -hmm. They'll get the idea from the context of how that word's being used, and they'll learn the word from just discussing what it is. Right. What does that mean? You know, the, we say that all the time. You know, yeah. What does that mean? And then you'll explain it, and then you'll add that word that's right. your, 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 so I, I have a quick question about, so imagine a world where everybody is using like a corpus tool. Don't you run the risk of having kind of this osmosis type thing happen where everybody ends up using the exact same form instead of having a diversity? It's an excellent, excellent question. Yes, you would. If we just followed what everybody else is doing, there's no creativity anymore. There's no originality right. So how anymore. do you kind of balance the two? <laughs> The, is it necessary to have a balance, or what do you think? Well, first, uh, it's really a tool for analyzing what we already have in the world. So initially, it's it's for observing what language is rather than following mm -hmm. it. So what we find that very good writers do, or the top people in the field do, is they, they know the patterns that people use, and then they break them, but they break them deliberately. Mm -hmm. So they would write the title of a research paper in an unusual way, which doesn't follow what everybody else is doing. They grab attention. Or they grab attention. You know, they put, I don't know, make it very, very short or, mm -hmm. or have just, yeah, very, very short is a good example, actually. Because most titles are fairly long, but they would just have a very short title that grabs the attention of the audience. That's interesting. So um, actually, it's not just in language, but in, if you look at any field, really, everybody... All the great uh, masters, in composers, for example, like Mozart, they they knew the patterns of music in, in for their generation. They knew how other people compose music, and then they take that and and right. make it more interesting. Make it I different. Was, I was thinking a lot today during your talk about James Joyce, oh. who maybe he wrote like Dubliners, a book that follows very carefully kind of the common write, writing practice okay. of the time. But then he goes off and writes like Finnegan's Wake, yes. which is just totally different right. and maybe doesn't conform. So what I would say um, is initially you, you can't be creative or original unless you know what you're trying to, in a, in a sense, break. Right. What rules are you breaking? If you're just lost, mm -hmm. you're, you're just going to be producing stuff that people don't understand at all. Mm -hmm. So you sh it's good to have a knowledge of what people are doing. Mm -hmm. And for the beginner learner, that's maybe enough just to follow what people are doing. And then once you get some expertise in that area, then you can start um, changing that, mm -hmm. making making the sentence longer, as we had in the, <laughs> a question in the workshop today. Maybe long sentences are okay in certain contexts. Right. So in that case, titles. the corpus is really good for students. Yes. Uh, you have to start by knowing what people are doing mm -hmm. normally. So. 
Absolutely. What impressed me a lot about that as well is that you can really start with the most basic of words, I mean, articles, prepositions, and then you get the whole structure of almost everything in the, in the document. Right. Right. Well, actually, John Sinclair, I mentioned him earlier, he was he started out by doing that kind of analysis, looking at grammar, not looking at grammar as much as looking at function words, which were traditionally not thought as that interesting. And he noticed immediately that function words are actually pattern, having patterns with other words um, in order to, for example, maybe. I mean, that's a kind of something that maybe everybody knows. But that kind of link between in and order and to, people didn't really notice that kind of pattern before. But, but through his work and through other people's work, they started really understanding now how actually grammar and lexis, we say, vocabulary, are not separate things and they're actually quite overlapping. And that idea of lexical grammatical English is uh, not just English, but language is really important now. So we don't just teach grammar and vocabulary separate anymore. We do try to combine them. Hmm. That's really cool. And I'm a little bit curious. So now we have the internet and we have Google. And right. obviously they're interested in this kind of thing. And do you know much about how they're using this type of these type of tools? Or Well, if you think of how the Google search or any search engine works, it basically stores a, a sample of the internet in, in a server somewhere. And then somebody does a search for a word or some term and the, the search engine goes off to this database of language, searches through that, pulls out the examples and then puts them on the screen, right? Ranked in some way. Yeah. And the ranking is quite an interesting point, but that whole process of basically getting a search term, going to a big database to find where that search term appears and then bringing it back is corpus linguistics. Right. That's exactly what it is, in a sense. Um, it's not, you know, the observer doesn't then look at the, the lines and tries, and tries to understand the patterns, but the concept is very, very similar. Mm -hmm. So um, I think the evolution of the internet is basically almost an extension of that in a sense. Oh, really the ability to be able to store language, right. electronic texts, mm -hmm. is one massive um, development since the 1960s. And then the ability to search that quickly, bring out results and then order them in some ways, another huge development. Okay, so just kind of changing subject a little bit. So this was, I, I'm not even going to assume, was definitely the first time that you've had to look at a corpus of primatology literature. <laughs> it was the first time, <laughs> and very interesting too. Yeah, so, so tell us a little bit about that. I mean, so for example, um, in relationship to some of the other data that you've been using, how does this kind of small corpus of 50 articles from primatology work or uh, compare? Okay, um, well, to, pre to prepare for that, workshop, I asked one of your TAs, Nomakon, to um, uh, create this s small corpus. And when we were developing that, there was a concern that maybe the, the, the field is quite broad and there'd be lots of differences. So I was a bit concerned about that initially, that we wouldn't find any patterns at all, and it would just be lots of different different examples. But when we put the, to go, the corpus together and started just searching for what I would normally search for, things like tense, things like verb forms, noun forms, adjective forms. There was actually quite strong patterns throughout those three journals. So it tells me that first that the field is not perhaps as diverse as you think, certainly in terms of how language is being used. Maybe the nouns, and, and uh, for example, might be changing, but the way the authors are writing is quite similar in primatology. That was a, that was a, that was a discovery for me. I, I was thinking it was a little bit broader than that. 
So is, how does that compare to other fields that you're in? I mean, in, in, science, in engineering, for example. Um, in terms of variation, I would say maybe it doesn't change. It's not that different in that in that sense. I was thinking it was a, a much broader field that that might even have some influence of humanities in it, for example. But it, it, didn't, it really just represented what I've expected from science and engineering journals. What would you expect more from humanities? Oh, that's a difficult question. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, not not as not as simple in terms of structure. Like this, A is B and C is D and E is F. Period. Structure is is really common in science and engineering. Just almost boring writing, but very very clear. I would in humanities we don't find that simple structure, uh, but in primatology it was very very noun phrase centered. Very verb simple verb phrase centered, mm-hmm. centered so that was um, in a sense a discovery I, I was not sure what primatology would be like as a language well we but like to think of it as a science so yeah I, I well I didn't know I, I wasn't sure you see I didn't really know before I started of course it is it's it's in the field of biology well there it, are kind of some gray areas around the edges like maybe the philosophy of biology or something that's right yeah do you have cognitive science as well there are some, it's, it is a broad field, right. but the, the journals I was looking at didn't really reflect that. It was a much more s- straight standard science kind of description. The journals that we chose um, just were basically three of the four strictly, I would say, I mean, they're kind of related to humans, but more primate themselves mm-hmm. centered. Whereas if you go to the more anthropological literature, mm. you start to get more into social sciences. I mean, mm. there's a couple of journals there too, but we didn't, uh, we didn't include those okay. in the corpus. What I was uh, another surprise I found was that uh, in in many engineering fields we we very clearly state the problem and it's usually an engineering kind of problem something that we can all ref- refer to like something not working or it's too slow or too expensive, but in primatology I was finding that many authors didn't explain the problem at all in the abstract at least they would uh, just basically assume that we understand why they're doing what they're doing. There there was an almost an unstated we don't know why kind of statement there. Hmm. And if you're an outsider coming into the field, like I was when I first looked at this, I thought this was really actually poor writing because the problem wasn't there. The reason for going out into the field and collecting samples was not stated. Mm-hmm. And um, it kind of came dawned on me later that it's just assumed that we all realize that not knowing why something's... First, that we don't know why is not even stated, but we assume the reader must assume that, okay? And then they must assume that it's important to know why. It's two kind of combined things there. Yeah, that's a really interesting point, though, and I, I'm not sure if, if, you know, many of us would have thought about that when we write our papers. To, but, yeah. I mean, it, it clearly, when you put it on the table, you should definitely state your problem why you're doing this. Yeah, but then, um, n- the ab- in the abstract, it seems to be that some people are not. They're, they're assuming that we know that there's this phenomenon and we don't know why... And it's important to know why. So it immediately goes from this kind of, this is a phenomenon in the field, and we're going to collect some data about it. So that whole middle section's gone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That, was, a, that was a new discovery for me. It's an interesting oh, point. very interesting. We're uh, short on time here, I think. But is there any, do you have any, anything that you need to ask? Um, I, I'm a little bit interested in, I mean, this is a really broad question, but kind of the end game for corpus linguistics in the future. I mean, is someday, is it going to encompass all language, like even our everyday speech and be able to find patterns and with things like 
artificial intelligence and machine learning? Well, f- well, first, in terms of the scope of corpus linguistics, I would say it's now the dominant way of uh, approaching language. Mm-hmm. So it's in terms of applied linguistics as a field, corpus linguistics is just dominating the whole field now. And uh, of course, there's other work going on, like pure linguistics. People in that area are doing something a bit different. But if we're looking, if we want to analyze language today, we generally create a corpus first and then look at that. So we use data to make decisions now. And the scope is going way beyond technical writing. I mean, it never really, st- it started actually in spoken discourse, spoken uh-huh. language. Um, Sinclair was looking at spoken language originally, back in the 70s, 60s. And uh, it went later into kind of research paper writing, that kind of technical writing. Well, just written documents. But it's really coming back now, and spoken analysis of spoken language is really, really big. And most of the dictionaries that are created now are all based on corpora. Wow. So all those examples that you see in dictionaries, they're all from corpora. Mm-hmm. So the scope is massive now. And, and in terms of language, it's going way beyond English. So. Mm-hmm. The analysis, the Japanese corpus linguistics field is really, really growing. And it's growing in, in, in Asia and other countries too. Well, cool. So, And then just to, uh, linking it to the, to the artificial intelligence aspect. Artificial intelligence has made major grounds because of the corporate that are coming in. And Google's machine translation tool, for example, a good example, that's just based a lot on corpora, mm-hmm. real language use. So that instead of trying to build sentences from scratch using some grammar model, they can just pull in example, you know, sl- basically fixed phrases from natural spoken discourse and then add that to the, to the translated sentence and it makes it sound more natural. Hmm. So it's coming in pretty much everywhere now. So I'm sure even like in your own, like your car navigation system and things like that, with those expressions coming in there, are probably based on something to recorporate. Oh, wow. That's really interesting. Here's a good way to summarize that one. Siri, open the pod bay doors. She's not going to talk to you. I'm really sorry about this, but I can't take any requests right now. Please try again in a little while. (laughs) Maybe it needs more work. This is a a good example because she said at the end, please wait in a little while. Now, a little while would be something that we would never even thought to have have in a, this artificial system, right? Like language system. A little while, it's so conversational. Mm-hmm. But obviously, somebody somewhere has analyzed spoken language and realized that we don't say in a short moment or in a moment or something like that. Right. That is an cool. example. Yeah. And Watson might be another example. Yeah, what? I was from the Jeopardy. Right. Yeah, Watson. That's right. Oh, that's right. That's right. So it is. It's a very exciting field right now. It's really is a. It's really growing. It's and there's a lot of things that we can still improve. Just in the workshop today, there were questions from the audience, like, uh, you know, how do we find the length of sentences, or you know, which how do we start writing when we have nothing? You know, these are questions that corpus linguists don't really have an answer to yet. Mm-hmm. So there's things that we can do to improve the, to improve the tools, to move the field forward, and that's what I'm trying to work on now. All right. Well, we look forward to what comes out in the future then. Thank you. And thanks for joining us on the Primate yeah, Cast. Thanks so much. Thank you for inviting me.